Welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, December 19th, we're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 34. In today's text, St. Paul addresses the denial of the resurrection of the dead among the Corinthians, reminding them of the absolute centrality of Christ's resurrection from the dead. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Martin Dressler. Pastor Dressler serves at Salem Lutheran Church in Black Jack, Missouri. Pastor Dressler, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you very much. It's great to be back. So we get started today. Give us some context. What should we know about this epistle and what Paul has been saying leading up to our section of 1 Corinthians 15? Uh, I was really excited that I get to do this section. Uh, 1 Corinthians is one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. Um, I think it's, for the most part, relatively clear to understand. And I think the other wonderful thing about it is that there are so many resonances between what the church in Corinth was facing and what churches today face, uh, given its uh, geographical location uh, and the uh, fluidity of ideas and thoughts that kind of passed through that region. I think it bears a striking resemblance to 21st century America. Uh, all the different ideas that and religions and philosophies that you could sort of cherry pick and create your own thing. I think a lot of that sort of thing was happening in Corinth. And so Paul is wrestling with that because it's certainly impacting the Christian church there, just like that sort of uh, mentality is impacting the Christian church for today. Um, so in our section, when we're getting to uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 12, uh, Paul's going to be addressing uh, really... I guess the fundamental question of the Christian faith, which is of the resurrection, uh, which is kind of an ironical thing because one of the challenges that the church in Corinth faced was all of these various factions that divided the church. Uh, you had not only a Jew-Gentile divide, you also had a sort of like lower and upper echelons of the economic fabric going on there. Uh, you also had those who were well-educated, those who were less educated, those who considered themselves theologically astute versus those who, can, who were, you know, only neophytes in the faith and just learning the ramifications of what it meant to be a Christian. Um, and I think that that latter one is really what's focused today. Uh, earlier on in Corinthians, uh, Paul had spoken about those who uh, claimed to have knowledge and they were very proud of their theological knowledge. And that was especially with reference to eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Uh, they had the claim that, hey, you know, there are no such things as idols anyway, so what difference does it make if we eat the meat that's been sacrificed to them? That's theological knowledge, and Paul showed them that, hey, in this particular situation, you don't actually know that much because love should be the governing thing here as far as how you uh, conduct yourself in a way that doesn't cause your neighbor to stumble. Uh, today, we're seeing even a, a, a bigger leap here because he's saying, look, you think you're knowledgeable, but this is like a huge pillar of the Christian faith, and you guys don't have this right. Um, so he's really taking the back to basics here uh, with reference to the uh, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hmm. 
So with the, with, with the situation in Corinth where they don't really know what they should know in this case, and we talked about that in the previous study where Paul starts this chapter, I would remind you, brothers, I want you to know these things. We've heard him say that before. What what kind of evidence do we have from, from this text and from what we know about the culture of Corinth as to what they did think about the resurrection of the dead or lack thereof? Yeah, so I think that's that's great. And what I'd like to start off with is sort of the, the philosophical milieu, the, the cultural milieu. Yeah. Um, what's interesting there as well is that there are, again, a lot of resonances between Corinth, Corinthian views and 21st century American views. It's kind of stunning, really. Um, so I suppose we'll start off by talking about the, uh, the, the Greek philosophical view, which seems to be the most prevalent one uh, concerning how they regarded the resurrection of the body and that sort of thing. Uh, and really, we can see it pretty clearly in uh, Acts chapter 17, pretty early on in Paul's ministry. Um, and he's up on the, you know, he's at the Areopagus and he's meeting with these debaters and, and, and people who discuss various philosophical things. And uh, so he talks about the resurrection of the dead and their response is, uh, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So right at the, the very onset, we're, we're hearing that there is a real pushback against this message of the resurrection, right? Some are, are sort, of, sort of curious, maybe at least, you know, only on an intellectual level. Uh, others reject it out of hand, and it's too surprising. Um, you know, Plutarch, uh, from AD 46 to 119, that's when he was around, he said something like this, uh, only the soul could attain the realm of the gods, uh, though freeing itself from attachment to the senses and becoming pure, fleshless, and undefiled. So this whole idea of um, the soul being good, the body being sort of bad. So Plutarch and apparently a lot of the folks in Corinth were heavily influenced by a Platonic worldview. So for Plato, physical stuff was, was bad. Uh, it's temporary, it's changeable, it decays, it's imperfect. Uh, just as a cool example about this, uh, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect circle in the world. How do we know what it ought to be? That's a good question. No circle, you know, not even a computer can really draw a truly perfect circle. I certainly can. Mine are always lopsided. <laughs> I make those. I'm, I'm terrible at drawing. Um, but not even a computer really can. And so the question is, you know, how do we know what a perfect circle ought to be, ought to look like? How do we know how to model our circles if there's no physical example of a circle. And so Plato would say, well, it's because there's another realm, a non-physical realm, in which there actually is a perfect circle, in which this perfect circle exists. Um, so for him, um, stuff that is not physical is the good stuff. This is kind of like what's referred to as the realm of forms or the realm of ideals. And in that realm, uh, it, it, things are more real than in the physical realm. They are, they're non-physical, they're timeless, they're absolute. Uh, they're the unchangeable essences of all things, as it were. So the physical realm that we experience with our senses and that we, uh, that we know day by day, these things are really just imitations of the real things or shadows. You know, there's that, that well-known myth of the cave uh, that Plato used to bring out. And uh, uh, I won't dive, dive into that too much, although the huh, listeners want to, Google that, go ahead and do that. There are tons of examples of that on YouTube, little animations of it and so forth. But for them, you know, what we see every day are really only shadows and, and imitations of the real thing that exists in, in this other realm. So for, for Plato and for the, the, the 
people in Corinth, the ideal, the goal would be to aim for a non-physical existence mm. because a physical existence inevitably means imperfection. And really, mm. it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, you know, that's kind of what we experience. All that we know really is a broken creation. We know about disease and decay and death. So if we're guided by our experience, only, all of that makes sense. You know, we know about arthritis and heart disease, mm. strokes, cancer, Alzheimer's. And in some ways, uh, life back in Paul's day was, was much worse even. Mm. People died of diseases that are quite curable today. Yeah. Reminds yeah. me of what Thomas Hobbes said, you know, that life is often what nasty, brutish, and short. Mm. Um, so I think in, 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 with this context, uh, the Greeks and many today, not only would doubt the possibility of a resurrection, but you know, it, for them, it was not even immediately obvious that being back from the dead is a good thing at all <laughs> because sure. be back in an imperfect, changeable body. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we still, we live in a world that very much seems to emphasize those things that are non-physical as those things that are better, whereas the scriptures would give us a different view of this created world now and of what God will do in the new creation, which is what our text is going to get at. Now, for the Corinthians then, who are Christians, and Paul has been addressing them as Christians throughout this letter, what seems to be their confusion, their lack of knowledge when it comes to the resurrection? I mean, Paul's going to say in the first verse of our text, some of you are saying there's not a resurrection of the dead, which maybe to us as Christians, like, well, how could you possibly say that? What what kind of view might they have had about the resurrection that's leading to this section in chapter 15? Yeah, it's, it's really it's fascinating because the view, I think that the view they espoused is one that you will see very commonly throughout the 20th century. Uh, as well, and even back further than that, you can see that in the the uh, the nineteenth century too. Um, so, their interpretation of the resurrection would have been the result of blending the philosophies they had inherited from Plato and you know guys like Plutarch and such, and combining it in some way with the Christian story, the Christian truth, and coming up with some kind of amalgamation, which essentially eviscerated the Christian story because denied the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, so they would have said something like this, that Jesus' resurrection uh, could not have been physical resurrection. It would have been something like a, um, a spiritual resurrection only. You can really see resonances of this, I think, also with uh, you know, some of America's founding fathers. Uh, there's the infamous Thomas Jefferson Bible where he eliminated uh, everything that, that smacked of the supernatural, of miracles, especially the resurrection of the dead. Um, some very famous, and I'll put in quotation marks, theologians do the same thing uh, in, the, uh, in the 20th century as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, what they, they believe in more of, this, it's, and it's more of a spiritual resurrection. So for them, uh, I think a lot of them had, were under the assumption that the only resurrection that they could expect was a spiritual resurrection, which was the uh, granting of the Holy Spirit given to them in baptism. So for many of them, they had already kind of reached the goal. And I think that this especially sort of informs passage uh, earlier on in this epistle, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, where Paul said, uh, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you become as kings. And what that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you, right? So there's sort of this assumption, hey, 
if there's a goal out there, if the Christian life has a goal, apparently we've already reached it because we've got the Holy Spirit and really there cannot be a physical resurrection because who wants that? We want a spiritual resurrection. We've already got it. We're set. We're good to go. Yeah. And so Paul has laid the foundation to teach the Corinthians the truth, to give them the right knowledge. In the first 11 verses, he reminded them of the gospel that he has preached, the only gospel that there is, founded in those very real concrete facts of what Jesus has done. And there were four things he mentioned especially, that he died, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared to many witnesses. And that's the ministry that Paul has had among them. That's going to set the stage for for what he's going to give them in our section for today. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right, let's take a look then at the text. This is 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. That's our text for today, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 34. Pastor Dressler, we were talking about verse 12 earlier. If if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Talked a little bit about what that means. And then as, as Paul continues then, he, he d- imagines for a few verses what it would actually mean for us, what it would look like if Christ hadn't been raised from the dead. So talk to us about this what, a contrary-to-fact sort of if-then statements that he, he sets up in this first section. Yeah, I think um, Paul is always can be very tricky to read, and I think this is one of those examples where Paul is at his most Paulish. Right? <laughs> you know, sometimes you feel I feel like his Energizer Bunny just keeps on going. It's yeah. like put a period somewhere, 
Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so yeah, I, I think it is really interesting because, you know, other cultures um, oftentimes would attempt to persuade by means of narrative or myth or legend. And in this particular case, uh, Paul doesn't do that. He uses reason. He's using kind of a logical argument. It, as, as I was reflecting on this, it struck me that you don't often see this kind of argument. I don't think if at all. Uh, laid out in the Old Testament. I can't think of an example that's this clearly, you know, sort of like a modus ponens type of thing. If A, then B, A, therefore B. You know, it really seems to be drawing on the Greek culture and Greek rhetoric here, um, which is kind of neat. But what Paul is doing is, again, he's, he's, he's adopting their Greek way of thought to present to them the fact that their position is untenable, this concept that the resurrection of Christ is spiritual only. It's tenable for them to... Uh, argue that they are a Christian if they're going to maintain that position. So he says something like this, if there is no resurrection from the dead, well, then Jesus hasn't been raised either. Okay. That's a significant problem, right? So, cause if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, well, then I Paul and all the other witnesses that he enlisted earlier, you know, in the first part of this chapter, well, then they're lying, which means that the message of the apostles is false because their message is based on the physical resurrection of Jesus. That's the, that's the, 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 the linchpin of the whole thing. It's, it's really amazing to see this, that if you track with the sermons of the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, the turning point, the climax, is the resurrection of Jesus. You know, they're constantly saying they're preaching the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, it's kind of an interesting thing. I, I think in most uh, American evangelical preaching, at least some of the, I say older evangelical preaching, Billy Graham and so on and so forth. It's actually the crucifixion uh, that mm -hmm. they seem to point toward more. But at least in the book of Acts, they're talking about the resurrection first and foremost. So, um, all right. So then if the message of the apostles is false, then all of Paul's work and all of the apostles' work is pointless. And the Corinthian Christians' faith is pointless and hopeless as well. And it's even worse than that. He goes on to say, look, the apostles are preaching the resurrection of Jesus. Well, then maybe the physical resurrection. Well, then maybe they're even found opposing God because they're speaking falsehood. So not only are they just slightly mistaken, it could be they're flat out saying something that's entirely contrary to what God would want. So a lot of major problems here. So even going further, if the apostles' message is false and the Corinthians' faith is pointless, then why not just give it up? You know, really, what's the point? Okay. And so if you give up the Christian faith, what does that mean with, regarding your sins? Well, you're still in them, right? So Christ has not been raised from the dead. You're still in your sins and everything is just a wash, right? Everything just kind of falls apart. So without the bodily res resurrection of Jesus, Paul is saying the Christian faith is nothing at all. So all the stuff that he's been talking about for the preceding chapters, the whole first part of Corinthians, he's like, there's no point in discussing any of that. There's no point in discussing all of your knowledge all that talk about idols, it's, it's, it's moved if there's no physical resurrection of Jesus. And he lays it out very beautifully, although somewhat, you know, it's a little hard to track with sometimes. I think he lays it out beautifully right here for them. Sure, yeah. And, and what you have to see in this whole paragraph, verses 12 to 19, these are all if statements. And, right. and the, the premise of all of them is that if there is no resurrection from the dead, and then particularly from that then, if Christ has not been raised. So he does start with that broad resurrection of the dead in general, 
but he goes very quickly to the fact then that that would mean Christ hasn't been raised. And that particular resurrection that has already happened in history is what makes all the difference for all the other resurrections that will happen on the last day. So if there's no resurrection at all, then you've got no resurrection for Jesus, which, again, as you pointed out, leaves us entirely hopeless. Life is pointless. We are most of all to be pitied, and and even perhaps we're actually now going against God and who he really is if there is no resurrection from the dead. You have to continually see that's the the starting point for this whole paragraph here. Exactly, exactly. It makes make sense, right? Because if, if, if it's true that physical things are bad, then again, why would a God want something that's that's bad for you? You know, that's huge. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And what you said about the preaching in the book of Acts, I think is, is helpful, because the resurrection of the dead often comes up in those sermons, sometimes, as in Acts 17, very specifically tied to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, and other times a little more, it seems generally preached that the resurrection has come or is coming. And I, but we got to keep those two things together, so that yeah, when the apostles are preaching the resurrection of the dead— there is certainly that general resurrection in mind, but it's always tied, just like Paul does here, to the resurrection of Christ already accomplished. Yeah, I think that's huge. Um, what that what that brings out for me is always the question of what's the point of the resurrection? Yeah. So what is the point of the resurrection? <laughs> yeah. Thank you for asking. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think that, uh, that that is so important. Um, the, the the question that stands back of that one, of course, is you know the question that they're asking, what kind of resurrection did Jesus have? And uh, it's clearly not just a spiritual resurrection because Jesus did stuff that bodies do, like he ate stuff, you know, yeah. and spirits don't usually do that. Uh, well, at least not any spirits I've encountered. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, spirits aren't known to do that, but he, Jesus had a body and he ate stuff, you know, and so it's very physical resurrection. So we asked the question then, okay, great. So what's the point of a, of a physical resurrection? And I think some would, would actually talk about it this way. And this is not entirely untrue. I think that you can talk about it this way, um, but I don't think it provides the, the the full picture. You can look at it in more ways than this. So a standard way of talking about Easter is something like this. Um, God raised Jesus from the dead to prove that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. It was, a, it was a sufficient sacrifice made for sins or something along those lines. And it shows that God approved of Jesus' sacrifice. Uh, but I think that there's a, uh, there's a lot more going on there. And I think that... Um, the significance of Easter is really thought out very clearly in, in verses 20 through 28. I think that's where he really brings this whole thing home. Yeah, I, I do think that there to talk about Easter and the resurrection of Jesus as a proof for, for God's acceptance of the sacrifice made on Good Friday, or even, I, I think, more broadly as a proof that, that Jesus is God, that the things that he said are true, uh, even a proof that God exists— I think those things are, are valid, and we shouldn't let go of those things. But I do think you're right. There's more to it than, than Easter as a, a proof of those things. Uh, there's, there's something greater going on, more things that God is accomplishing through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that he will bring out in verses 20 and following, particularly this matter of the first fruits. Now, I, I do think, though, just to, to remind our listeners just how central, though, this teaching of resurrection is here is is a very important because <laughs> this is a real thing that people saw it actually happened in history and it like this makes a difference if this isn't real then you and I are wasting our times not only in this conversation but in our in our career choice as pastors our church buildings are a waste of of money and resources if 
Christ isn't raised from the dead. Like his, Christianity has this this linchpin that if you could prove it false, you could prove it false. Unlike many other religions, and we we shouldn't miss just how significant Paul's argument here is. I really appreciate that. I was talking with uh, my uh, sons the other day about this. That a lot of other uh, religions tend to deal with, well, they tend to view history as, as accidental and sort of not necessary. Uh, so there, like you say, there's nothing historical that could prove or disprove uh, their religion. With Christianity, it's not the case. And you have a God who is eternal, yet who enters time and who looks at time and looks at creation and at the very beginning says it's good. Yeah. Uh, and therefore he enters into it with the purpose of making it good, making it very good again through the person of Jesus Christ. And he enters into it in order to do that, which is kind of a wonderful thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One, one more thing before we leave this section behind, just because, as, as we will see, Paul continues to emphasize the preaching of the resurrection of the dead, and especially the resurrection of Jesus, and how in Christian preaching, Paul, even in this, own, this very epistle, says, we preach Christ crucified. I resolve to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. So how do... I know I I probably mentioned this yesterday. I'll probably mention again tomorrow when we study the rest of this chapter. But how do those how do how does the preaching of only Christ crucified and then you've got nothing if you don't have the resurrection of Jesus? How do those two things in this one epistle go together? Yeah, well, like you mentioned earlier, I don't think you can separate them, right? So, and some people do try to do that. They try to play one off over against over against the other, and I think you really can't do that because you ask, well, if there's no crucifixion, there can't be a resurrection, right? right. That doesn't make any sense. And if there's no uh, resurrection, then Christ is still dead. And what hope do we have? So pulling those two things apart really doesn't make any sense. And I, I also, you know, this is, sorry, I'm, I'm going to try to answer your question even more fully by referencing something you said just a minute ago about uh, the insufficiency of referring to the resurrection as a proof only. Well, here's an example of that. So if it's only a proof of the resurrection of Jesus, God could have raised Jesus as a proof and not raised anybody else. You know, if it's a proof only, he wouldn't have to raise anybody else. It yeah. wouldn't necessarily signify that. Uh, but if the resurrection of Jesus entails something more than that, well, then we're saying something else, you know, and, and I think that's where Paul does eventually go here. But yeah, but definitely pre preaching Christ crucified uh, is such a significant thing because it really wrestles with the brokenness of the world. It wrestles with the brokenness of myself and the need of this sinful person to die. Um, and the necessity of a new creature to be raised, a creature which is given granted by the Holy Spirit and given, uh, you know, uh, in the new creation fully. Absolutely, absolutely. So we preach bro, we preach both Christ crucified and raised from the dead, and we're going to keep looking at the implications of what that means that Christ has been raised more than just a proof of who he is, but something that God is doing in Christ. We're going to keep looking at that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO, talking to Pastor Martin Dressler this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. 
LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, December 19th. We're studying 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 34 with Pastor Martin Dressler. He serves at Salem Lutheran Church in Blackjack, Missouri. Pastor Dressler, prior to the break, we looked at that long if-then statement in which Paul imagines if there is no resurrection, if Christ has not been raised, what would that look like? In verse 20, he comes back to actual reality. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And then he says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And I think with that word first fruits, we start to get into what we were talking about earlier, that Christ's resurrection accomplishes something, not only a proof of who he is, but is actually God beginning to do something in this new creation that he's bringing. Yeah. I mean to say one thing quickly about that word, but in verse 20, isn't that the most beautiful? Yes. <laughs> no Absolutely. Word you know, my goodness. Don't you know, stop reading at verse 19. <laughs> I know. It reminds me of uh, of Luther when he, in the large catechism when he's talking about baptism, and he used that word, nevertheless. You know, when Satan and conscience accuse you, you say, nevertheless, I am baptized. It seems like the whole Christian faith hangs on that word, nevertheless, or but. This is what God has actually done on our behalf. And you see that here very, very clearly. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Um, the first fruits is, is extremely significant. So, um, I think Paul is here hearkening back to Leviticus chapter 23. Last time I was with you, we were doing Leviticus. Uh, yes. So it's kind of odd that it pops up here again. Uh, but uh, Leviticus 23, uh, and it was, uh, uh, it took place on Sunday, so the day after the Sabbath, and it was a sign that all of the harvest belonged to God. Um, here, I think also it's really cool because if it signifies that it's the first fruits, you're anticipating what? There's more to come. There, there's something else happening after that. There's more to come beyond that. Uh, so Jesus' resurrection then uh, essentially becomes a pledge that all who had fallen asleep in him would finally be raised physically. Um, I think this word, uh, fallen asleep, I, I want to talk about that for just a second. Um, there are many euphemisms that are employed by Christians today, not Christians to in place of death, right? So we'll use terms like passing away or they, they passed away or passed. Uh, uh, more recently, I've heard people uh, use the term transition, right? They've transitioned. And I had no idea what the person was talking about. It took me a few minutes to finally wrap my head around it. Um, uh, but Paul is not using a euphemism here when he's talking about falling asleep. I, I was thinking about this. Yeah. And when people use the, the term, you know, passing away, well, that's a one-way street, you know, or passing or transitioning. It's a one-way street. There's no anticipation of returning to the previous iteration, right? But with this idea of falling asleep, well, when someone falls asleep, what's your anticipation? This person's going to wake up again, right? This person's yeah. going to wake up again. 
So what Paul is not saying, he's not saying that death is not death when he's talking about falling asleep. What he is saying is that death is not what? Death is not final. And I think that's the really significant thing here that that Paul is talking about. Yeah, that's right. There's, and like I said, there's a number of these names for death in the scriptures that are, are more than euphemisms, but are actual realities for us in Christ. And this matter of falling asleep, the point of comparison is that, that it is a temporary thing. Death is you die, but you will be raised. So there's a temporary nature to it. Now, as, as Paul then continues into verses 21 and following, he starts to make a contrast, which we'll see again later in this text, beyond what we have today, of Adam and Christ. So the difference between the two and what each one brought. How does he how does he bring that out in this section? Yeah. So for for Paul, there's really only two options for human beings, two possibilities. Um, the, the one possibility is that you're united to Adam in sin, and then there's death, and that's it. There's death, right? Uh, separation from God. Um, however, uh, everyone who is united to Christ through baptism in righteousness rises from death. So what we're picking up here is something like he would talk about in, in Romans chapter 6, uh, that you've been uh, you know, united with Christ in, his, in a death like his, and you'll be uh, united with him in a resurrection like his as well. There was one uh, professor of the seminary, I think it was uh, Joel Okamoto once, who preached a sermon, and uh, a line, a recurring line that he had in the sermon I thought was so helpful was something like, um, in baptism you become so knit to Christ that what goes for Christ, that goes for me. And I love that. I think that's a really helpful way to, to talk about baptism. And I think that's really what Paul is talking about here uh, as well. So that when you're in Adam, all die. In Christ, however, united to Christ in baptism, you receive his robe of righteousness, all are made alive again. Talking about the same resurrection that Christ experienced. And so just as, as the death that Adam and those who are united to him experience is a physical death, so the resurrection that Christ has experienced and those who united him will be a very physical resurrection. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so then the first fruits word comes up again in verse 23, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. And then even that then comes the end. Help us into that verse. Yeah, okay, good. So um, again, I think what's, what's uh, significant here. Is and I really like this illustration. I think it was Luther who who talked about this. Um, is that when we're talking about the bodily resurrection of Christ, uh, we're talking about the beginning of the restoration of all things. Right. This is not only for Christ, but this is the beginning of the restoration of all things. It's essentially the undoing of the fall and the curse that was brought in with the with the fall of of Adam and Eve. So. Jesus was raised bodily from the dead as the beginning of this whole new creation. And so Luther would say something like, um, Jesus is the head uh, and the church is the body. So you can imagine, uh, you know, when a child is born, um, the head comes out first. And then what happens? Uh, Luther says the body, the body comes out yeah, easily. I'm not sure that that is true. I wouldn't use the word easily. <laughs> but <laughs> but right. it is true that the body follows. Yes. Um, so there is that. I love Jesus' illustration, too. When, when I lived in Michigan, I was there for about four years uh, I had I was a Southerner, right? So I grew up in North Carolina, in the mountains of North Carolina, and so Michigan was quite a shock. Uh, <laughs> not so much culturally, uh, but definitely meteorologically, right? It yes. was very cold. And our first winter there, I believe, was the year of the polar vortex. Oh. Um, so you know, I was shoveling snow at like negative forty wind chill, and that was that was brutal. Um, so my wife and I were not accustomed to winters that lasted that long or that were that 
brown and you know dry, you know d- dead essentially for that long. Uh, but one day we went outside and into our back patio, and there was a little uh, strip of garden that sort of uh, enveloped the the patio, went around the edges, bordered it, and we saw a couple of green shoots coming up from the ground, and we were just overjoyed because that signaled to us, hey. Winter's almost over. Spring is here. This is the beginning of something new. You can think about Jesus Christ as the very first seed that sprouts, you know, that begins. This is the beginning of something new. The reign of death has been broken. God is doing something new in the world. It's the beginning of an entirely new creation. Uh, I, I love that, that way of looking at things. Um, so question then becomes, uh, when will this happen for the rest of creation? When will this envelop all of it? Well, that's when Christ comes back. That's when he comes back and he will make sure that, that uh, uh, all of those who've been united with him in baptism, they too participate in this resurrection that he first experienced on that, uh, on that Easter morning. All right. So, so Paul turns then toward the end there in verse 24, then comes the end. This is when the rest of the harvest comes in, when the, the spring is made evident for all people and they are raised in Christ on that last day. And then it talks about the what what Christ will do in terms of delivering the kingdom and reigning over all things. Begin to take us into how Paul continues there. Yeah, yeah. So I think that word the end there is really important too, right? So end or or goal, you know, or the 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 point to which everything has been striving this whole time. Here here it is right now, you know. Um, so th- this here here we're talking about the uh, the victory uh, that Christ is winning. He talks about the the enemies that are going to be put under his feet. And Paul is really riffing here off of Psalm 8, where it talks about um, all uh, God created Adam and put all creatures under Adam's feet, as it were. And Adam becomes, uh, well, an, an image of God for the creation, and he is to subdue the creation. So in that sense, all creation sort of is under Adam's feet. Paul here takes that, applies that same metaphor to Christ, um, and yet extends it beyond that. So now it's not just um, you know, the, the, the things that we see in this world, but it's all enemies, including overall spiritual enemies, the last enemy being what? What is the last enemy here? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Um, that is huge. And I think it's a very hard thing sometimes for people to swallow that particular phrase. Hmm. Why, why is that? That, that, would, that death is an enemy? Yeah. yeah. We don't normally talk that way. Um, I think, and, and frankly, I, I don't want to speak out of turn here, but I think uh, oftentimes the, the reason for that could be because people haven't let the Christian narrative uh, fully overtake our experience of death. Does that kind of make sense? So we have a very hard time taking death and placing it within the context of the broad Christian narrative, including the resurrection and Christ's defeat of death. So what do we do with that? Uh, at funerals, sometimes you'll hear people say something like, you know, hey, you shouldn't be sad. Uh, they're in heaven now or something like that. And, you know, in some ways, you know, there, certainly there, there's an element of truth in that. Otherwise, it wouldn't be uh, believable. Um, but I think the other side of it is that that we, we want to believe it um, because death is hard. You know, we don't really want to have to reckon with that the terrible thing uh, that death is. And so a lot of times people, rather than confronting it head on, they'll sort of try to psychologically sidle up to death and cozy up to it and make a friend out of it rather than recognizing it as an enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but as, as, a, uh, as Christian, we can definitely recognize death as an enemy 
we can allow ourselves to be sad about it. Because if you think about it, uh, when Christ was outside of the tomb of Lazarus, before he called Lazarus come out, he wept, he cried, you know, because, because of Lazarus. So Christ cries at death. Certainly Christians should feel at liberty to cry at death as well. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, even within this this one passage, you see some of that ambiguity in the way that Christians think about and talk about death. Because on the one hand, as you pointed out, right, Paul has just talked about those who have fallen asleep, and he's used that very sweet name of death, that as Christians we can face death as no more dangerous. Well, I, I fear the grave as little as my bed, as the hymn goes, right? I mean, so so we, we go to sleep in death in the same confidence that we go to sleep at night, knowing we'll wake up in the morning. And so there's no fear. At the same time, within this passage, he also names death an enemy that is being defeated by Christ. And I, I, you see both of those, that there is, there's a place for confidence at Christian funerals, and there's a place for mourning at Christian funerals, side by side. And though that may not seem like it would go together, it does in, in the Christian faith. Yeah, no, I think that's so true. Um, you know, we recognize that death is this unnatural thing for human beings. He didn't intend that for his creation. Um, it's this tearing apart of the body and soul. You can you can imagine it that way. Um, it, there is a place for sadness because we're certainly going to miss the person who's died. That's a very hard yep. part of this. Obviously, you know, it's it's, it's that there's this this hole that's left, and 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 sometimes you know those things don't really ever go away. Uh, time may dull it to a certain extent, but never fully uh, erases it. Right. Um, we're also sad, and here's what I think is really uh, significant as well. Two points here. Uh, one is uh, because it's a reminder still of the brokenness of the world. You know, when someone dies, we recognize things are still not the way they ought to be, and we know it. You know, we know it. And I think that even non-Christians know it, uh, which is why, you know, we, we don't often have um, uh, hospitals that are, that are you know, open or, 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 or we don't really like to deal with relatives that are nearing death. We're very uncomfortable with that. Non-Christians mm -hmm. do are very, very uncomfortable with facing reality of their own mortality. Um, so here's another one too, and I think this is in my mind that the most significant, is that we're sad too, because even when that person has died, here's the clincher, they're still not what God intended them to be. That's really important. So we can be sad, yes, that the suffering has has ended for them. If it's if it's especially if it was a long drawn out illness, we can be thankful about that, that they're, you know, that that they're no longer suffering in that way. Uh, we can be thankful that, you know, as 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 Paul said as well, um, you know, they're away from the body and with the Lord. That's that's wonderful, you know. They're 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 in heaven. The Bible doesn't say that much about what heaven looks like. It's hard for us to imagine that because we everything that we can uh conceptualize always involves our senses to one degree or another. So what does it look like to be a soul without any senses? I don't I don't know what that looks like. And scripture is kind of is is rather quiet on that front. What it does talk about is the resurrection. And I think what's so that that my one of my favorite hymns for all the saints, um, we had a funeral uh two weeks ago. And we, what this was one of the first members that picked for all the saints and I was so thankful for them. um there's that wonderful line where it talks about you know, that, that one stanza about the golden evening uh, brightens in the west. Soon, soon to faithful warriors cometh rest. But then the verse right after that, stanza right after that begins, but lo, you know, hold on though, there's a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in, bright, uh, rise in uh, bright array. Yeah. Um, I think that's really the, the, the hope that 
that we're ultimately driving for, right? Uh, we're, um, so, yeah, so we, we should mourn uh, at funerals, but the key is, and as you were mentioning this, it's not as those who have no hope, as right. Paul would say, right? Right. Right. Yeah. I think, I mean, when it comes to the things and we, I don't, I don't want to spend the rest of our time talking about this because we probably could, <laughs> but when it, when it comes to the things that we say to someone, to a Christian who is mourning the death of another Christian who has died in the faith, I think sometimes we just stop too soon and, and we'll say, this person is with Christ right now. And this person will be raised by Christ yes. on the last day. And I think if we just say both of those things, then we have given the full biblical hope and, and as you said, we really then end with the emphasis on the place where the Scriptures place the emphasis. So, yeah. yes, this your loved one who has died in Christ is alive with Christ right now, and Jesus will raise him or her on the last day. If, if we just end there, because that's where the end of the story actually is, and that's where the Scriptures emphasize for us, then I think we, we end up giving each other the real hope that is ours that allows us to mourn with hope. This is where, you know, the liturgy that we tend to lock up in the church needs to break out of the church. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. That's something that we say that we can we can say to one another in the face of death and not just in the face of death, like at the loss of a job that was unexpected and the, you know, facing disease, facing personal collapse of certain relationships. The fact that Christ has been raised and these things that are broken will be undone in the end. Boy, what great hope is that? Let's 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 throw that out there. Um so just one, one more thing on this one before. I know we don't, and I'm sorry, I don't want to take up too much. Okay. There's so much here. Um, so, okay. So my wife's uncle has a really uh, beautiful devotion on this. He's a, he's a pastor as well. And in this devotion, what, what he talked about was the, the, the two shortest verses in the Bible. And most people, when you ask them, what's the shortest verse, they go automatically to John 11, Jesus wept, you know, the one we just referenced. Uh, but he mentions, well, there's a second shortest verse, another one that's equally short which is First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16, rejoice always. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you just say, well, hey, that's just happenstance, whatever, you know, but hey, it's really cool to think that the two shortest verses deal with what in worldly uh, concept are two completely different ideas, these two polar opposites. And yet in Christ, they find union. Together in Christ, the, uh, weeping and rejoicing come together. So yes, we mourn the brokenness, and yet we rejoice also because of the hope that we have in Easter. I think that's a, a profoundly beautiful thought there. In verses 27 and 28, Paul speaks a lot at, at length about what is in subjection to Christ and things in subjection to God. Help us with this subjection language he uses in those two verses. All right, all right good. So uh, I think the Athanasian Creed helps a lot here. You could think about it in those terms as well. So if we're speaking um, uh, according to the divine nature of Christ, right? We say he's... Uh, one person and two natures, right? So he's one Christ, and yet he's both fully human and fully divine. So with reference to his human nature, God is, uh, Jesus is less than the Father, the Son is less than the Father. With reference to his divine nature, he is equal to the Father, right? So we can say that. But I think here it's probably more helpful to speak in terms of uh, not so much ontology. That's what we're talking about with, the, with that previous discussion, the, the nature of things. It's probably more helpful if we go the route of um, economy. So the question of how does God deal with his creation? What is, how does he act toward it? So if we talk about economy or the story of salvation, the way that that scripture presents it is that um, God, the father sends this who subjects everything underneath himself. And then he brings it back to the father and places everything under the father. It, you know, it, it can cause some people heartburn, but it really shouldn't. So you can think about it this way. It's just a matter of roles, really, right? 
So you can have someone who's a, uh, well, I'd like to think about it in terms of the president of the United States, maybe, and you know, cabinet members. And here's why I say that. You know, some people would say, well, who's the smartest guy in the room? Is it the president or is it, the, you know, he's some of his cabinet members? Well, uh, sometimes it's more of the cabinet members, right? It's not a commentary on their ability. It's not a commentary on their being or their essence or anything like that. It's really just a commentary on the role. And so the role of the son is to uh, not only is he the one through whom the father created everything, he's the one through whom the father restores everything and returns it back in relationship to the father. So I really think it's just as, as simple as that. It's not an ontological thing. It's an, it's a, it's an economical thing as well. Right, right. So not, not making any comment as to whether or not that Jesus is less than the Father. The Son is right. God of the same substance, as we confess in the Nicene Creed, right? But a matter of, of the role that the Son plays in the salvation and the restoration of all things, so that God may be all in all. Which brings us then to verse 29, which is one of the most confusing verses in this epistle, if not the entirety of the Scriptures. As it is translated in the ESV, we read this, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Yeah. Help us out here, Pastor Well, I'd like, to, I'd like to throw it back at Paul and say, what do we mean? <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there, there are several different uh, possible translations out there, and uh, two that were proffered by Lutheran theologian in the past. One was Luther who suggested that maybe they performed baptisms out in the in the graveyards or something like that as a as a rap, you know, the word huper, the Greek word huper is what is causing all this Greek year, uh, grief here. Um, so maybe something like they baptized people over the graves as a signal that Christ would raise people from the dead. I'm not sure, as you were mentioning earlier, you know, in conversation, I'm not sure that actually plays out with Greek grammar. Um, it makes sense to me, theologically speaking, I, I would like that to be the case. Um, and there's another one, Wenski as well, who has something like with a view to the dead. So in other words, something like, well, Christians in the past uh, who have died were baptized and therefore we're also baptized sort of with reference to them or something like that. But it really sounds like there's some sort of vicarious baptism going on here if you're following the grammar strictly. Um, so it's, it's really bizarre. One argument I've heard against this position and that there's just some mystery going on here that we really can't uh, ferret out fully, is the idea that if that were happening, Paul would definitely have called it out. And I think that is certainly the case. Um, Paul has no problem telling people when they're wrong. He, That's right. he, he doesn't seem to, he's not bashful, right? Um, so this kind of practice were going on, I think he would have very quickly called it out um, because it, there's no other precedent for it in the New right. Testament. We don't see that. And especially if you think about it in terms of a, of a New Testament iteration of Old Testament circumcision, it really doesn't make any sense. Um, right. So, yeah, I wish I could help you more. I don't know what to do with that either. Yeah, it, it is a, it's a strange verse. And I, I, too, I would like it to mean something like over the dead in the sense that people were literally baptized in cemeteries, which I think, you know, adds some nice, when you think about many of our churches today, maybe having a cemetery out the back window, you could look out from where the baptism's happening and see those who have died in the faith previously. I like that that thought. I'm just, as you said, I'm not sure that the Greek grammar really points in that direction. If there is some kind of vicarious baptism happening, it certainly is an aberration, given yes. the very clear passages as to what baptism is. And if Paul and, and so there is that thought that maybe Paul, you know, he would have he would have blasted it had he had he had something more concrete in mind. Or maybe he knows of this small aberrant practice that's happening and says, Hey, like 
you're doing this thing, or some people are doing this thing that doesn't make any sense unless people are actually raised from the dead. But by the way, don't do that thing. Yeah, you know, yeah he, he doesn't. He doesn't add that, but it's kind of there in the background. It seems maybe even by the fact that he just gives it such short shrift. Yeah, and just mentions whatever it is in passing. Only and and again, the reason that he mentions it, I think, is the most important point. He's mentioning this practice, whatever it was, to say this practice and good or bad, it doesn't make any sense unless the dead are actually raised. And that's right. ultimately his final point here. Whatever the practice is. Yeah, maybe it's mentioned in the missing epistle because that's right. Yeah, maybe, it's, maybe it's in the 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 first letter that he he wrote that we don't have. I've I've been asking guests if they have a copy of it. No one has yet, so I don't know. Yeah, perhaps. But again, it's it's an odd verse uh, when it comes to what we believe and teach about baptism. We go to those very clear passages of scripture: Matthew twenty eight, where the Lord institutes it; Romans six, where Paul really explicates it and what it does. And we we leave this one to the, we're not sure what that means, and we always interpret this less clear passage in light of the more clear passages. And that's, that's huge for, for our, our hermeneutic of Scripture, and it's, you always have to watch out when you're dealing with people and they start to take a very unclear passage and base an entire philosophical theological view off of that. They're doing that because there's a, an iffy passage that's a bit muddy, and you can make a lot of hay out of that. You can make it say what you want to say, you know. That's so. right. That's right. And and for this particular passage, the Mormonism makes a lot of hay out of a verse like this when it comes to baptisms for the dead, which again, uh, that's not a Trinitarian religion. It's not a Christian religion. And so, but you do see an example of how a verse taken out of context can be used to to work all kinds of bad things. So we want to understand it correctly. And at the same time, recognize we're not entirely sure exactly what's going on here. Right. So verses 30 to 34, Paul wraps up and starts to make this transition in, into what we'll see in tomorrow's text as to the again the great importance of the resurrection and like well if if the dead aren't raised then why all of these things got about two minutes here pastor dressler help us to, to wrap things up with this last section verses 30 to 34. so part of me thinks that this is paul uh, envisioning uh nietzsche <laughs> and nihilism you know uh he really does this idea that there there's uh, no point to anything nothing nothing matters at all and that's really what he's saying so he's like if there's no resurrection uh why bother uh, why not do whatever I want to do if there's no resurrection from the dead? Because it ultimately doesn't matter anyway. So for Paul, why am I risking my life? Hence the whole thing about you know wild beasts. There's no actual reference to him um, engaging with with wild beasts. We don't actually hear about that. But he, he could be saying something. He could be referencing people that are sort of like wild beasts or something along those lines. But in any case, we do know that he had a laundry list of of uh, potentially deadly encounters um, that he wouldn't have undergone had there been no point to this, you know, at all. Um, so uh, he quotes that, that, that really excellent phrase there. I think it's Isaiah 22. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Hmm. Um, so, you know, you got the enemies outside the gates and all the people are saying, well, hey, we're, we're done for anyway. Let's just go ahead and, and make the most of it. Um, this is a YOLO, you only live once uh, mentality. I haven't seen many of those bumper stickers recently. Um, I miss Well, I don't know. I'm not going to make too much commentary on why that might be the case, but uh they might not be with us anymore. Um, anyway, the, but what I think is so great is, is this next line too. Uh, bad company corrupts good morals. He's quoting a pagan philosopher here. He's like, look, even the pagan philosophers know better than you guys do, right? Yeah. He's, so apparently they were doing things like that. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we saw that there was a man who was having a relationship with his stepmother. And so apparently this whole idea of there not being a physical resurrection had an impact on their morals, as it would. And so Paul's saying, look, 
that's the reason I was saying you can't do this kind of stuff because it matters, because your body matters, because the restoration of your body is the ultimate telos, the ultimate goal of what Christ is doing in the world. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, isn't it remarkable how in this epistle, which is very, there's a lot of sections to this epistle. Paul kind of picks up one topic after another. And yet, as, as you were just pointing out, that's a connection I hadn't made yet, but you see how throughout he is weaving the same themes together and they do all go together. And I think in such a way that that chapter 15 serves as a bit of a capstone with the resurrection of the dead, that this is what Paul's been driving at all along in this epistle, even as he's been dealing with a variety of issues that are happening in this church in Corinth. He wants them to know that there is a resurrection of the dead. Christ has been raised. That means they will be raised as well. And as we'll hear at the end of this chapter, that means their work is not in vain. And so the, the resurrection of the dead gives us hope for the life of the world to come, gives us gives us reason and purpose right now for the things that God gives us to suffer and to do as we await for that day when Christ comes again in glory. Pastor Martin Dressler is pastor at Salem Lutheran Church in Black Jack, Missouri. He's been helping us today to study 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 34. Pastor Dressler, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about 1 Corinthians 15, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.